For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a look at the second half of the legislative session, including developments at the Department of Child Safety. And hear from two authors who will be at the 2016 Tucson Festival of Books, naturalist Cy Montgomery and Old West expert Bob Bowes-Bell. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Arizona lawmakers have reached the halfway point in their regular session. As Christopher Conover reports, the real work is about to begin. This is the time in the legislative session when lawmakers and Capitol observers start anticipating the end of the session. An annual pool among lawmakers to predict adjournment day usually starts right around this time. One issue is holding up their departure, the budget. Republican Senate President Andy Biggs is known for being hands-on with the budget process. It's coming along okay. It's not moving as quickly as I would like it to move. And, but uh, that, I suppose, could be expected because last year, I think we raised everybody's expectation level as to timeline. And then the second thing is there's a perception by some who, uh, that there's a whole bunch of money. And so when that happens, there's a lot of people who want to spend. And so you have to... A wrangle with that, and that can be actually quite difficult. Big says he's waiting for budget requests from the House. In the House, Democratic leader Eric Meyer says he wants to get the process moving. You know, we're halfway through session. We're at about the 50th day now, um, and the hope would be that we start some budget discussions, but they haven't been going on. We saw the governor's proposal, um, but it's been quiet on the budget around here, and maybe next week or the week following week we'll start having some of those discussions. Representative Meyer says small group talks are all that's happening. Aliyah Rao, who covers the budget and the legislature for the Arizona Republic, says lawmakers shouldn't worry too much at this point. They seem to be pretty on track with what we more typically see. I mean, last year was very unusual. We were done in just over 80 days. The goal's generally 100 days, and it seems like this year we're a little bit more on track with that 100 days. Hanging over the negotiations is the desire of House Speaker David Gowan and Senate President Biggs to win election to Congress. Gowan is seeking the Republican nomination in the first congressional districts, Biggs in the fifth. Biggs says his campaign for Congress is not an issue in the legislature. My commitment that I made to my caucus is that I would be focused. Uh, I would continue doing what I do, which is push hard on get, getting budget, budget resolution, push hard on getting bills and get the work done efficiently and getting a good product. Um, and I don't think it's going to be, uh, I don't think it's going to be in the way. Representative Meyer isn't so sure. He says it's a distraction and may drive some legislation. In Mr. Biggs' case, for instance, he, he's running in a very conservative congressional district. So how that will play into, for instance, the budget and some of the things we're discussing, like about refunding our schools and our universities um, with some of the surplus that we have down here um, versus are those dollars going to go to tax cuts? 
So I think that may put uh, him in a position to be uh, more tight with the purse strings. The Arizona Republic's Aliyah Rao says the congressional desires of the two legislative leaders is making for some interesting jockeying among rank and file members of the legislature. Certain lawmakers kind of trying to show that they can get things done via bills. So we're seeing big pushes for that. The budget is tied to most issues, most especially education. All agree that school funding from an expanding voucher program to the end of desegregation dollars will cause some big fights before this year's session comes to a close. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Christopher Conover. The legislature must also deal with a host of bills to get the Department of Child Safety running smoothly. Joining me now is Lorraine Rivera, the host of Arizona Week, which this week will take a close look at the DCS. You know, normally when the legislature is in full session, we have heard lots about child safety. And um, I think my estimation is that we haven't heard very much so far. So I asked some of the lawmakers what their thoughts were, because we are seeing an increase in caseworker turnover. And um, that some people may view as problematic, given the fact that the number of children in the system is also increasing. And here's what the spokesman for the Department of Child Safety had to say about that. We see the the backlog of inactive cases being uh, whittled down very significantly, about 22% since Director McKay took office almost exactly a year ago. Uh, When he started, that list of uh, inactive cases, the backlog, was a little over 16,000. As of today, it's at about 12,500. That's about a 22% uh, drop. So that's excellent news. Is the backlog of cases the biggest issue that's currently facing DCS? Not necessarily. As we just heard Doug Nick, the uh, spokesman for the agency, say that number has whittled down significantly, but they are concerned about the fact that some of these people are leaving the agency. The average time a caseworker stays in Arizona with DCS is about six years. Uh, They're making about $41,000 a year, and this is tough work that these uh, workers are are dealing with. Um, So you have to understand it is challenging on their personal and professional life. Some lawmakers, though, are concerned that those numbers don't quite mix with what they are hearing and what they're seeing. There has been some legislation um, introduced this session thus far that could change the metric and language. And here's uh, Representative Rebecca Rios. We know that there are glaring problems with the Department of Child Safety, and yet there is this frightening silence that's occurring. In my estimation, it's because we have a governor, Governor Ducey, who has handpicked the director of DCS, and he's standing by his man. Um, I think to the point where it's unfortunate. In preparing this report for Arizona Week, what did you find is a, a reason for hope in relation to Arizona and its child protective services policies? Well, Arizona continues to be one of the worst states when it comes to child safety, but the agency, as we know, is very large, an $850 million budget, and there are some slow changes being made. The question is, how long does change really take? We've had a new director, Greg McKay, in for the last year, and I think it, it might be too early to tell for some people how quickly that change will actually transpire. But what we do know right now, there are about 20,000 children in the system, and one lawmaker told me that's enough to fill Phoenix Suns Arena, which is a, a pretty startling number when you think about it that way. Find out more on the next Arizona Week, Friday at 8.30 p.m. and Sunday at 11 a.m. on PBS 6.
Artist and author Beth Serdet met naturalist Cy Montgomery in 2012 at the Tucson Festival of Books, where their friendship was hatched based on their shared love of birds, not just in the bird-watching sense, but as co-explorers into those animals' inner lives of consciousness and emotion. Montgomery has made learning about animals her career and has written 17 award-winning books for children and adults about critters ranging from pigs to tigers to dolphins to moon bears. This year, Cy Montgomery returns to the Tucson Festival of Books with Soul of an Octopus, a surprising exploration into the wonder of consciousness. Here is Beth Surtit with the interview. It's so good to talk to you today. You know, you really are a bold one. Your newest book, Soul of an Octopus, I looked at that and I thought you were writing about animal cognition and emotion when even respected animal behaviorists, Jane Goodall, for instance, wasn't publishing their own ideas because the scientific community wouldn't accept them. Would you have been able to title a book Soul of an Octopus when you first started writing about animals? No, absolutely not. You are so right, Beth. I think now, though, the world is ready to accept that animals have emotions and thoughts and feelings and that we're not alone in the universe in having consciousness. In, in fact, as you know, in 2012, a consortium of neuroanatomists and neuroscientists and other scientists got together in Cambridge in England to write and sign the Cambridge Declaration on Consciousness, saying that all mammals and birds, and certainly some invertebrates, they mention octopuses specifically, have what they called the neural substrate necessary to generate consciousness. So what you and I have known, and many of of your listeners have known, for, for decades, and many humans have known for centuries, now is being recognized by scientists and philosophers who weren't ready to acknowledge that even just a few decades ago. And those of us who just watch and listen, these truths are revealed to us. I think you have to almost purposely blinder yourself to the, the thoughts and, and feelings of animals to, de- to, to deny that they exist. And anyone who's had a pet dog or a pet cat can see this, can testify to it. It's a little harder to see in an, in an octopus, maybe, because we don't get to see octopuses as much as we might want to. But if you look, it's there. I look at all the animals you've written about, the golden moon bear, the tree kangaroo, the cockapoo, the tapir, snow leopards. Those are either exotic or cuddly looking or interesting. And then there's the ones that you have to respect, the raptors, the falcons, the harris hawks, the man-eating tigers. But you've got this other group of beautiful, interesting creatures that are so different from humans that Some people are scared of them. Some people loathe them. Tarantula, snake, and octopus. Three hearts. Suckers. (laughs) Yep. And 
tasting with your skin and being able to slip through a tiny opening because you haven't got any bones at all and a brain that wraps around your throat and arms that, if severed, can go off and do things, including change color and even hunt prey. This can freak some people out. We should just walk around this world gobsmacked, I think, realizing all these complex lives going on around us, animals with powers that we only dream of, and yet all of them are thinking and feeling much as we do, and all of them love their lives as we do. I never thought that I would cry over the story of an octopus, but I did. I did. Oh, Beth. When one of the girls in your book thought that she had viable eggs and tended them. Could you talk about what happens to an octopus when they have eggs? Octopuses lay eggs at the end of their lives, and they do it in darkness. No one can really see this happen, but we would come in, and day after day, there would just be more eggs. Their eggs are the size of a grain of rice each, and they're hung almost like a, a, not quite a string of pearls, but almost like clusters of grapes, which they glue to the ceiling and the walls of their lair. And from the moment the female octopus starts laying until the time she takes her dying breath of water, she is completely devoted to these eggs. She will never leave her lair. She will never leave her eggs. She will not go hunting for food. And sometimes even if you hand her food, she won't accept it because her job, her whole raison d'etre now is to protect and clean and fluff and tend these eggs, protecting them from, even though there weren't really any other predators in her tank, there was always a chance the sunflower sea star might come over and want to eat some of her eggs, so she was guarding them. She was the most devoted mother. And there were a group of teenage girls who I'll never forget, who walked by her exhibit, and one of the the kids said, ew, octopus, gross. Oh, I bet it feels icky to touch it. And I said to these three girls, but look, it's a mom octopus. Here's the eggs. And instantly, these girls changed their mind. Instantly, they were like, oh, how sweet. And they wanted to know more about her. And after we'd talked for a little while and they stood in awe watching her tend to her hundred thousand eggs, when they left, one of the girls said to me, you take care of that little mama. And this was somebody who they found repulsive just minutes before. It seems that humans tend to gravitate towards animals that act like humans. I say that in quotes. I think that you and I both have an interest in animals that act like whoever they are, not mirrors of us. Yes. There are animals that, like an octopus or a snake, that aren't mirrors of us. How do you go about choosing the animals that you write about? Well, sometimes they choose me. Um... And sometimes it's a very careful choice. My, my first book was an 
an homage to my heroines, Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey, and Berute Galdikas. And that book was about their relationship with their study animals. So writing about those great apes was a great way for me to, to start my career writing about the minds of other animals because, you know, we're so closely related to a chimp. You can get a blood transfusion from a chimp. You look into the face of an orangutan, and there's that guy that took you to the prom in junior high, you know. <laughs> um, they're, they're very much like us. But as interested as I am to find the similarities between us and other creatures, like you, I think I'm more fascinated by the differences because this is what stretches our imagination and also stretches stretches our the limits of our compassion. I mean, it makes us more compassionate to imagine and conceive of and respect and care for other minds, minds that aren't like our own. And that's what really fascinates me. They're, they're living by senses that we've lost or never achieved. Um, they can hear voices that we can't. And this is totally true. Animals have powers we don't have. Birds can see infrared light. Um, octopuses can taste with their skin. Um, spiders can shed their exoskeleton, which is more than just shedding your skin. It's actually shedding your skeleton. Um, animals have so many senses that we don't, and they're able to probe our world and know our world and know the truth of our world in a way that we can't. And I love that. So how do I, how do I pick the next critter to write about? Sometimes it's that lucky thing that, you know, you're giving a talk on pink dolphins and you happen to meet the person who's studying the tree kangaroos in Papua New Guinea, and that did really happen, and that's how I ended up writing about tree kangaroos in Papua New Guinea. Um, you'll be in the Amazon writing about pink dolphins, and you'll meet the guy who eventually leads you to the golden moon bears. Um, and other times, I've made a deliberate choice, and that was the case with octopus. I made a deliberate choice at that point in my career feeling I've, I've written mostly about vertebrate animals, some of whom can speak, like the birds, in perfect English to us. But most of animate creation, most of animal life on our planet is invertebrate. And most life on our planet lives in the sea. So I felt like it was time for me to try to write about a marine invertebrate and write about its mind. And that was what brought me on that fateful day in March 2011 to the New England Aquarium where a keeper opened the tank that contained Athena, my first octopus, and she reached for me from the water and I reached for her from the air and that changed my life forever and launched me on this book. Cy Montgomery, the author of Soul of an Octopus, will appear at two events, Saturday and another Sunday, at the Tucson Festival of Books, March 12th and 13th, on the University of Arizona campus.
True West Magazine executive editor Bob Bowes Bell is an artist, author, and lifelong lover of Western history. Bell has found a playground for himself somewhere between the facts about how things actually were and the larger-than-life myth of how things maybe should have been. His latest project is a limited-edition book that let him combine his love for meticulous on-site research with new paintings inspired by one of the greatest artists of all time. You know, I've always been interested in uh, Van Gogh, and I've his perverseness and the fact that he cut his ear off and he liked wild colors just always appealed to my kind of cartooning side. And a couple of years ago, I read that the theories about his death were wrong and that he did not commit suicide. And as a matter of fact, he may have been shot by a Buffalo Bill wannabe. Well, this just blew my mind because I thought, are are you kidding me? There's a Wild West connection to the death of Vincent Van Gogh. And I started to read obsessively about it. And there's a wonderful biography, Vincent Van Gogh, The Life, by Stephen Mayfa and Gregory White Smith, I think is their names, the two authors. And they laid it out pretty clear. And so then I became obsessed with wanting to um, go to Europe and actually walk where they walk. Because that's that's kind of my uh, M.O. when it comes to the Old West. I, I need to go to the O.K. Corral. I need to stand where they stood so I can kind of get a sense of what actually came down. And so last September in 2015, me and our director and our wives, we went to Amsterdam first and then to Noonan, which is where Van Gogh uh, grew up, and then to Brussels and then to Paris and then to Arles in the south of France. And then finally to a little suburb of Paris called Auvers there was, which is where he was shot. And uh, to actually be there uh, on the ground uh, was just absolutely wonderful. And I came back and put that all together into a classic gunfight in True West Magazine where we actually uh, tell that story. And then I thought, I need to do a limited edition book on this. And I talked to my good friends down at Cattle Track Art Compound, which is in Old Town, Scottsdale. And they wanted to do it, so we're doing a letterpress limited edition, 100 copies on Vincent Van Gunfighter. On the surface, there wouldn't seem to be a connection between Vincent Van Gogh and the Old West. Um, Europe and America were very different in the 1880s, but they both seem to crave what the other one had on some level, don't they? You know, that's a really excellent point, uh, because uh, the Beatles were really just uh, holding a mirror up to America and playing uh, black music, which nobody listened to here that was white, and they made it seem really sexy. And so you're absolutely right. I never thought of it this way. The same thing was happening the other way with Buffalo Bill. And the Wild West was a uh, phenom in, in this country, but it was huge overseas. And Buffalo Bill found himself, uh, you know, with the Queen of England. And he did a six-month engagement in Paris and sold out every single show. He was a darling of Europe. And that's where uh, Gauguin saw the show twice, several artists, Whistler saw the show. Um, and this young Paris punk named Rene Secretan saw the show and started dressing up like Buffalo Bill and uh, wearing a gun and fringe coat. And he was going around showing off uh, his, his basically his quick draw. He summered in Auvers-sur-Oise, which is where Van Gogh was in the last months of his life. 
and he uh, hated Van Gogh. He thought he was a crazy man. And as a matter of fact, we wouldn't know this story if it wasn't for Kirk Douglas, because Kirk Douglas starred as Vincent Van Gogh in Lust for Life in 1956. Yeah. And by that time, Rene Secretan was an 82-year-old man. He was very upset by the portrayal and wanted to set the record straight. And so he told about how uh, he and his brother Gaston would terrorize the uh, artist and put snakes in his painting kit and put salt in his coffee and yada, yada, yada. And many now see it as a deathbed confession because he admitted that the pistol uh, that was used uh, was his pistol. And he said that it went off when it wanted to. And so uh, Vincent, as we know, in the traditional telling of the story, was distraught over his brother's setbacks, and uh, he painted his obituary, which is wheat field with crows. And in the movie, of course, he goes over and can't take it anymore and pulls a pistol down from a branch of a tree and shoots himself in the heart. And it doesn't kill him, and he walks back to the Raveau Inn where he's staying, and he dies two days later. Well, the problem is that the shot was not in the heart. It was uh, two inches below the, the ribs, and that's not a heart. Uh, that's not a chest shot. And who shoots himself in the side? Uh, the police came and they did a uh, investigation, and they said uh, to Vincent, "You know that suicide is a crime." And he said, "Do not blame anyone. I did it myself." And that's a that's a kind of an interesting um, little comment. Do not blame anyone. He didn't want the boys blamed, and we believe that he martyred himself for them, and so that they wouldn't get in trouble. Why do you think that he would be interested in protecting them after this pattern of abuse from them? The older brother Gaston was an artist and uh, actually liked Vincent. You know, Vincent was very religious. His father was a pastor. His father before him was a pastor. And so he grew up in a very religious background. In fact, Vincent himself uh, spent time uh, as a missionary and also studying to be a pastor, uh, but he failed at it. But he had a very religious bent, and he was very caring about the despised ones of the earth. And so I believe that he had a very giving heart, and that he, in fact, decided that the best for everyone would be that he would take the blame and uh, then he would be dead, and his artwork might actually be sold, uh, because he only sold one painting during his lifetime. Bob Bowes Bell will appear at the Tucson Festival of Books Sunday, March 13th at 1 p.m. at the U of A Main Library Special Collections Building. Find the complete schedule for all the visiting authors at tucsonfestivalofbooks.org. And for help planning your Festival of Books experience, tune in next week for a special all-author interview edition of this show. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood, with assistance from Isaac Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.